This morning, uh, we'll be reading from Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 34. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she could predict the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that her hope, their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into the prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in an inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and trembling before Paul and Silas, he, and he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God he and his whole household. This is the word of the Lord. Fifteen years ago, uh, Lori and I were at this church, my wife Lori and I, and the church graciously gave me a year away. And Lori and I moved to Seattle for that year, and I worked on getting a second master's degree uh, during those 12 months. Uh, there were a lot of blessings in that year, a lot of difficult things that came in that year away. One of those things, though, that happened, if you'd asked my wife or me, you would probably get two very different perspectives of whether that was one of the curses or one of the blessings. Because one of the things that happened during the year we were there was that they had an earthquake in Seattle. 
Uh, it was in 2001. It's what they called the Nisqually earthquake. It was a 6.8 magnitude earthquake. It was called, also called the Ash Wednesday earthquake. And so I was sitting at home studying when that earthquake happened. Uh, we were in an apartment, and I was sitting at my desk in the apartment uh, studying, and all of a sudden the dog started howling and running around the apartment, acting crazy. And then I turned around and looked down a long hallway behind me, and there were waves in the floor. And I had never, you know, I've had a couple of those little, I grew up in Ohio, so I've experienced a couple of those little Ohio earthquakes, which means a, a shake and a rattle. I've never seen waves in the floor before. That was a new experience for me. But, but immediately I was like, this is so cool. I get to experience an earthquake. I mean, I've never really been in a real earthquake, and this is the neatest thing. Look at this. The walls are shaking. Pictures are falling. This is a pretty cool thing. So I just kind of sat and enjoyed it. And we're just thinking, you know, i got a story to tell now. It was funny. We were on the lower floor of a uh, three-floor apartment complex. So finally, when it ended, I kind of walked over and looked outside. And everybody else in the apartment complex was standing in the parking lot. And as I walked out, I got that dumb Midwesterner look, you know. <laughs> like, you idiot, what are you doing in there? Uh, a few minutes later, my wife called. She was managing a large medical clinic in a suburb of Seattle at the time. And she called me, and she didn't find it an exciting experience at all. Uh, she was not uh, encouraged by it. She didn't want to ever have to tell that story. Uh, part of it, she was in charge of a whole medical clinic and earthquake protocols and all those things at the time, so it was a little different experience for her. But it was also... This idea that the whole earth is shaking and there's nothing I can do to change it. There's nothing I can do. There's nowhere I can run to get away from it. As we talked about it later, she said that was just really disconcerting to her. That was just an experience she never wanted to have again. If we have to go through that again, then we need to move because that's not something she ever wanted to experience. Very different. This, this idea of security, your dictionaries tell you that security is the state of being free from danger or threat. Well, in that moment, Lori would tell you, she felt like anywhere she went, there was danger and threat. There was no way to escape it, really no solid ground around to run to. We, we experience different ways in security, right? For me, the earthquake wasn't really one of them. But we all have different things that make us feel insecure, make us feel like the ground that... That thing that we expect to always be solid, always be dependable, we can always count on it, is suddenly moving. It's suddenly not so stable. Suddenly we can't predict what's going to happen next. Suddenly those things that we just knew would always be this way are not that way. Sometimes we bump into that maybe in our marriages where things change and they're not what we expected. Things aren't going the way that we always thought they would go. Sometimes in raising our kids, we face things. We've had dreams and plans, and we knew how it was going to go. This was the way it would look. It wouldn't be like other parents because we were in charge now, and we knew how it was going to be. And suddenly things don't go exactly as we thought they were going to go. The ground below our feet feels like it's moving, and like there's nowhere to go to, to find solid ground again. Sometimes it's a job that changes. Uh, sometimes it's our finances. Sometimes it's our own health, or it's the health of somebody we love where suddenly we run into things that we just never thought about it. We never expected that those things could be insecure and unstable. But suddenly they are. And you know how it is in those moments. You, you want somehow to find stability again. 
you want to find it anywhere you possibly can. For me, I know when I face those insecure times, there are a couple of things I naturally do. One is I want to analyze the situation to death because I believe there is a fix somewhere. And if I can't find it, there's an expert out there who can. Somebody's got to have an answer that will fix this and make it stable again. Or if I really kind of give up hope on that, then I just got to get distracted because if it can't be fixed, then I just need to not think about it. I got to get busy with something else or numb my brain with something. I got to somehow get away from this thing, right? You all have your different versions of fight or flight, but we all have them. The ways that we're going to make it all better somehow through our own resources, we're going to reestablish stability again. Or somehow we just have to, we have to escape. It has to just not be true anymore. But sometimes we find things like Lori found in the midst of that earthquake. There's not really a thing you can do. This is outside your control. Do all you want and it's still going to happen. When we walk into today's passage, one of the things that struck me as I was studying it this week was that where the gospel goes, where the power of God enters in through the gospel, uh, things get shook up. Things, things start changing. Things happen, and it disturbs a lot of people when things start getting shook up, right? People don't always respond well to that when things get disturbed. In the story before us, Paul and Silas and Timothy and probably Luke also with them we're all traveling, and Paul is told by the Holy Spirit that he's to go into Macedonia, and he's to preach the gospel there. Now, Macedonia was a little kingdom just north of Greece and just east of Asia Minor, and he is told to go there. So they make their way in there through a few, couple of towns, and then they end up at Philippi, this uh, city that they're in in Acts 16. Now, Philippi was a, a very important city in that area, it was on a major trade route, but it was also a, a city that had been in many ways established by um, people who had retired from the Roman military. So very Roman city in a lot of ways. Matter of fact, it had a unique distinction that was given to it that was only given to a few of these colony cities. And it made it, in a sense, an extension of Rome. So it was a, a little Rome. And it was often said about Philippi, as Rome goes, so does Philippi. Little Rome, but big Greek influence also. Not a very strong Jewish influence. And we see that just before the passage we're looking at today. Because when they enter that town, and they're, as was the kind of normal procedure, would be go to the synagogue and begin teaching those Jewish people in the town. Well, here they just went to a place of prayer where some women were meeting. Because there really wasn't a synagogue. There wasn't a very large Jewish population to go to there. So they go to that place, and again, they're preaching the gospel, and they're traveling through, and they've had some success already. And now as we enter this passage, Paul and Silas are going through the city preaching. And this woman begins following them, this slave girl, we're told. And this slave girl begins proclaiming this phrase. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you how to be saved. Screaming it as she follows them and follows them through the town. And this goes on, we're told, for a while, for a couple of days. She keeps doing this, keeps proclaiming this behind them. Uh, we have a similar situation Jesus ran into. Remember in Capernaum, when Jesus goes into the synagogue, there's a man there that we're told is possessed by a demon. And that man, when, when Jesus appears, he says, Go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Again, when, when God enters a situation, when the power of God enters through the gospel, evil's disturbed. Evil takes notice. That happened when Jesus walked before this man who was possessed by a demon. That happens when Paul and Silas are in this town and begin preaching. Evil takes notice. 
And this demon-possessed girl, the demon begins proclaiming this about them. Now, you may say, well, she's speaking the truth, right? They are servants of the Most High God. They are here to tell you how to be saved. So she's speaking the truth. But remember, she's doing this in a town with a very small Jewish population. Probably when she's speaking, nobody's walking around thinking she's talking about the God of Abraham, Yahweh. That's not who the Most High God is. They're probably thinking she's talking about Matter of fact, that phrase would have been phrase would have been common to use in talking about Zeus or talking about whoever the top God was in their local pantheon. And also this idea of showing you the way to be saved, probably not thinking about this idea of our eternal destiny, probably more likely just thinking about the one who's going to give me wealth and health and prosperity right now is going to pull me out of difficult situations, who's going to make my current situation better. But even if they heard the message of Paul and somehow they understood that what she was saying was true about what they were proclaiming, this is probably not the endorsement you're looking for. You're probably not wanting the demon-possessed girl who makes money for her masters by fortune-telling. It's probably not the one whose endorsement you're wanting. So as he walks through the streets of Philippi, we're told that he was... Actually, the new, uh, NIV says they were annoyed... But it's probably better uh, translated, he was deeply troubled. And we don't know what way he was deeply troubled. People assume he was frustrated. Maybe he was deeply troubled because there's this woman who's possessed by a demon who's following him around. I mean, not a good situation for this poor woman who's following him all over the city. So some ask, well, why didn't he cast out the demon sooner? Why tolerate this for a couple of days? Well, again, maybe because he knew what was going to happen when he did. Maybe he wanted the freedom to continue to walk around the city, to walk freely and preach the gospel. Because as soon as he cast out this demon, things changed. Maybe he was deeply troubled. We just don't know. Maybe he was deeply troubled, stuck in that situation, that tension between the freedom to proclaim the gospel in this city and this poor woman who's been possessed by a demon. But at some point, enough is enough. And he casts this demon out. And what happens is people aren't too happy. So evil's disturbed where the gospel enters in. But also then we see some of the ways of this world are disturbed, right? Some of the things that this world finds security in, the gospel changes things. And people don't like that when the gospel changes things. This demon is cast out and suddenly our masters go, we're losing money. We make good money off this woman telling fortunes for people. And suddenly this isn't happening anymore and it's their fault. And so they grab hold of Paul and Silas, and they drag him before the local authorities. And then they, they know how to get people on their side, right? If you really want to turn people against Paul and Silas, not only they took our money, I mean, that affects us, but you know what? They're not like us. They're those Jews, right? They're those outsiders. They're not like us. And they don't, they're not really following the Roman laws and customs like us. If you really want to rally people against you, then let's, let's not only poke at those really important things that we count our secure ground like our money, our material things, but let's poke at predictability. Let's poke at those things we find familiar, right? If you want to get people on your side, mess with their money, mess with their fears of the unknown and the different, and now you win over people. True all over the world, isn't it? We see it right now all over the world. We see it in our own country right now. We see it, if you really want to stir up fears in people, 
then let's poke at their fears about their ability to pay their bills. Let's poke at their fears about the unknown and the difference somehow taking over and losing those things that we're familiar with. Let's poke at those things. And suddenly we get pretty scared. The solid ground under our feet feels like it's moving all of a sudden. And we want stability again. And how are you going to get stability? Let's get rid of these outsiders. Let's, let's get them out of here. And so we're told that they were, they were punished, they were severe, severely flogged, beaten with rods. They were then thrown in the prison. The guard is told, you need to keep them secure. You need to watch over them. So he puts them in the inner cells, which again, we're talking probably not uh, the prisons that we know today. We're talking probably not a very pleasant place. And they're put in the worst of the cells, the inner cells. And then we're told their feet are put in stocks. And we do know from ancient writings that stocks that they would put their feet in were often very painful. Uh, this wasn't a pleasant experience. It wasn't just they were held in place. They were held in place in an incredibly uncomfortable way. So that's their situation. They have entered a town and they have messed with the things that people have come to count on. Evil's taken notice. The world's been shaken. They've messed with people's livelihood. People don't like that. They messed with the familiar and the predictable. People don't like that. And suddenly, they're thrown into jail. One of the things that's interesting to me in the book of Acts, and you see it from the very beginning, this, this new infant church that's growing, um, this church of Jesus Christ, as the gospel is being spread throughout the area, one of the things you see again and again in the books of Acts is Dr. Luke, as he writes, is telling stories that seem to be showing that the gospel breaks down these barriers that people have, these things that normally divide. Because the gospel, he again and again shows, the gospel goes to male and female. The gospel goes to slave and free. The gospel goes to Jew, to Greek, to Roman. The gospel breaks down all those things that we normally use to divide and separate the boundaries we put between us. Suddenly, the gospel breaks them all down. They all become secondary in the face of Jesus Christ. That the gospel unifies what the world divides. And people get uncomfortable. So Paul and Silas are taken away. They're stripped. They're beaten. They're locked away in stocks. And here's their reaction when things get really threatening. We've seen how others react when things get threatening. Here's how they react in the face of threat. In verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Everything's gone wrong. We've been physically beaten. We've been locked up. Our freedom's taken away. Our friends, who knows where they are? Our future is not looking so great. Where do they turn? When the ground is moving, what do they reach out and try and grab hold of to find secure ground? It says that they pray, they ask God to intervene, and they sing hymns. They begin remembering their God and singing praises to him. That's the solid ground they reach out and grab hold of. Remember once years ago when I was a youth pastor, uh, I took a trip with Youth for Christ and our youth group here went together and we went out to the Rockies and out to the Tetons and spent a couple of weeks uh, traveling around with kids. And while we were uh, in Wyoming, one of the girls wanted to get baptized and she wanted to get baptized in the Snake River. Thought that would just be a really cool experience. So Brad Pontius was with Youth for Christ at the time and I, we decided we we're going to baptize her in the Snake River, which just sounded like a really cool idea, you know. So we go down in the Snake River and we get her down in there. I got to tell you, Snake River was moving. This was not an easy baptism. This was one of those, if you let go of her, she's gone. <laughs> you know, 
It was like dunk and throw, get her back on the bank. And the whole time that we're baptizing her, I am holding on to this little tree and holding on to her while Brad is on the other side holding on to another tree and we're dunking her and pulling her back up. But not the experience I think we were all thinking we were going to have, you know. When things are moving like that, pulling at you, you want to grab something solid. You want to hold on to something that makes you feel secure. That's what they did. They reached out and grabbed on to what would bring them true security. They didn't change their situation, right? The environment didn't get any better. Not in that moment. But they still reached out and grabbed on to what gave them security. And things do change when you do that. Situation might not change, but your experience changes when you have something secure you can hold on to. They did just like King David had done before them. Psalm 18:2, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 28:7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy and with my song I praise him. Things seem to be falling apart all around me. The ground is moving. I don't know what to do. But I know one place I can turn, well, it's secure, it's solid, I can count on it. I know his love will be there. I know his strength will be there. I know that his eye will be on me. I know if I reach out there, there's stability. It's available to me. And that's what they did. And I think when they did that, it not only brought stability to them, but I think like in all of us, and I've seen it again and again as I've been with people walking through hard times, that stability has ripples. That when they reach out and they grab onto God to find stability in the midst of those threatening places, those insecure places, that there's something about that that starts affecting the people around them. That that holding on doesn't just change their experience. It changes the experience of people around them. They see something that's unique and different that, that draws them in. Um, Paul and Silas could have turned to the Roman citizenship. That they eventually do. And many ask the question, why didn't they do that right away? And some have said, well, maybe they just didn't have an opportunity to do that. But come on. How hard is it to yell out, we're Roman citizens, somewhere in this process, scream it out. But for some reason, they chose not to do that. They chose not to mention it. They get physically beaten, severely flogged, we're told. They get thrown in the inner cells and, and stocks put on their feet. And they've not mentioned that they're Roman citizens. Because what we understand Roman law, it was fine to do all that was done to them if they're simply foreigners. But if they're Roman citizens, this is against the law. And a few things that happened recently in Rome that people in the colonies were very aware of. You don't mess with the Roman citizens. We saw someone get punished severely for this recently. You don't mess with the Roman citizens. So that would have had a lot of power. Yet Paul and Silas never mention it. And many ask why. Why not, why not mention it now? Why wait till later? And again, I wonder if it's not because they wanted people to know where their security lied. Their security didn't lie in the fact that they were Roman citizens. They weren't here freely risking proclaiming the gospel because they knew Rome stood behind them. They were risking proclaiming the gospel in this place because they knew God stood behind them. It's what they believed, and I think it's what they want others to see and to know. He is the authority. He is the power that we rest on. He is where we reach out and find our security, not Rome. And those ripples kind of spread. Because I think it's interesting because then what happens, there's an earthquake, as you know. There's an earthquake. 
the jail walls are shaken, enough to knock the doors off their hinges, enough that the chains are loosened, that everybody could be free. And what's interesting in that story we don't think about very often is nobody left. Not just Paul and Silas didn't leave. No one left the prison. Why? I worked in a jail for a couple of years. I've got to tell you, leave the door open, there are a whole lot of people who are going to leave. They weren't staying around. Nobody left. And again, I wonder if some of it wasn't this ripple of, of Paul and Silas. These people who held on strong to their God. These people were singing hymns in the cells and proclaiming the strength of their God, even in the midst of this horrible situation. I wonder if when that earthquake came, that people around them didn't recognize something's going on here. Something's going on here bigger than just an earthquake. And they stayed. And so we know the Philippian jailer comes out, and he was actually going to do the honorable thing. He's going to take his life. It was the honorable thing because as a jailer, as the person over a Roman uh, jail, he was responsible for the security of all those inmates. And so if any of those inmates got away, it was likely that he would at minimum be taken out into the public square and be publicly beaten severely. More likely he'd be executed. And it was considered the, the honorable thing to take his own life first so he wouldn't bring shame upon his family by having all that happen publicly. So he's about to take his life. And as soon as he's about to take his life, Paul yells out from inside the cells, it's okay, we're all still here. You don't have to do that. We're all here. And we're told that he calls for lights and he runs back into the jail and he sees that they're all still there. And he falls down trembling before Paul. And he asks that wonderful question, what must I do to be saved? And he takes them out of the jail, actually, gets them out of the dangerous place. And then he asks them, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you must do. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of commentators talk about, oh, he was probably just asked. He wasn't probably asking, what do I need to be saved in the way we think of it? It wasn't, what do I need to do to solve this dilemma of that my sin and rebellion against God have caused and this eternal judgment that I face? It's not that dilemma that he was concerned about. He, again, was just concerned about, what do I need to do to be rescued from this mess that I'm in right now? I don't know. I'm not sure what he meant by the question. Because, again, he was around Paul and Silas. I don't know what he heard and what he understood about their message. But to be honest, if he was simply asking, what do I need to be, do to be saved from simply my current mess? Or what do I need, need to do to be saved from this dilemma that I face eternally? I think the answer would have still been the same. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and suddenly all of your situation will become wonderful. Right? Life is not an old Christian movie. It doesn't really work that way. I don't think he would have said that. But I think he would have still said what he believed and what he um, modeled. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him. And even these things all become different. Because you're not alone in these things anymore. Because God is in it with you. Because God loves you. Because God is guiding you. God is protecting you. Because Jesus will come again. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, you and your whole household. And we're told that he did believe. He takes Paul out of there. He cleans Paul and Silas up. He feeds them, takes them in his home. His whole family comes to believe. 
We're told that he goes on and he speaks the word of the Lord to him. So he didn't just say that statement. He also taught them what that meant. He instructed them in the word of God. They believed. And then we're told that they experienced joy. That they're the result of believing was that he experienced joy. He and his whole household. I love that. Later, Paul will write back to this church at Philippi. Um, and probably these same people are in this church now. This jailer and his family are probably members of this new young church in Philippi. And Paul at this time is in, in prison in Rome. And he's writing them to say, I'm in prison in Rome. Don't get too worried because I think I'm going to be back with you again sometime. So he writes uh, Philippians 1. I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Paul says, I can't wait to be another reason that you experience joy in Jesus Christ. My greatest purpose, in a sense, is I want to bring to others joy in Jesus Christ. And I know when you see God now release me from prison again and bring me back to you, you know who you're going to be praising and enjoying? Jesus Christ. Because you're going to know he did it. He's behind it. He's the one who's always been behind us and supporting us and giving us the power to do this ministry. And you're going to enjoy, rejoice in him. That really is kind of our purpose, isn't it? Our purpose is to be people who progress in the sense that we continue to pursue joy in the faith and joy in Jesus Christ. And we bring that to others. Our purpose is that we might all together know more joy, more joy in Jesus Christ. We don't think about it a lot of times, but that's that's progress in the faith. He doesn't say what I'm hoping for. Is you'll just be more moral. You'll just know better. I want you to know more joy in Jesus Christ. Not just joy, not just this denial, shallow kind of thing. I want you to know joy in Jesus Christ because you really see him. You really come to understand him. You've really come to believe in him and you hold on tightly to him and you know he's there. Even when the ground is shaking. Many of you have met with me at one time or another for pastoral counseling have probably heard me refer to Jeremiah 17 because I would say in counseling, it's a passage that comes to my mind a lot. It's one of my favorite passages, and so I end up referring to it probably too many times. Uh, but the reason is because a lot of times I'm talking to people who are in the midst of what are pretty threatening situations where the ground really does feel like it's moving under their feet and they don't know where to stand. Uh, Jeremiah 17 in those cases often comes to mind for me. It's a passage where... As you know, the prophet Jeremiah goes to the people of Judah and he's telling them they've, they've actually been in a time of some prosperity and stability, but he's telling them that time's coming to an end, that the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to destroy Jerusalem and you're going to be taken away into captivity, that hard times are coming. It's going to be bad. And he goes into detail about how bad it's going to be. And it is ugly what is coming. Uh, they respond the way most of us would probably respond. They try to kill the messenger. They just want to get rid of him. But no matter what they do, he continues to proclaim God's message that judgment is coming because they've been idolatrous, because they've depended upon their own resources instead of following God. Judgment is coming and they'll be taken away in Babylonian captivity. And it's going to be hard. It is a threatening, difficult situation. Hard things are coming. But then in Jeremiah 17, God through Jeremiah sends the message of, and I think mercifully says to them, even though this hard thing is coming, even though you're going to be in this really difficult place and really suffering and really struggling, I want you to know there are two ways to respond. 
One of them you're going to be tempted to do. And it's going to be one that's going to bring more difficulty. One of them's going to actually bring blessing to you despite the hard things you're going to face. Even though, I'm, even though by my hand this is going to happen, I still want you to know blessing even in the midst of the suffering. And so in Jeremiah 17, he lays out two paths, two kind of options that they can choose. The first one he describes is what he describes as a desert bush. I've been told that the bush he's describing is probably similar to what we would call sagebrush here. You know, it's a bush that's in some ways designed specifically for a desert environment. It's a bush that needs very little water to survive. Its, its roots are very close to the surface, so it catches even the morning dew. It doesn't produce much color or any fruit. It just survives. It looks dead in many ways because every bit of its energy goes to nothing but its own survival. He says that's going to be one of your choices. Your option, one of the options you're going to consider is this is a harsh place. We have gone through hard times. Pull in my boundaries. Take care of myself. Just survive. That's all I need to do. Depend on all my resources, which aren't many right now, which means they all got to go to me and to my own survival. That's what I'm going to do. Option number two. You could be like a tree that's near a stream of living water. And it says that you can reach out your roots. Matter of fact, the, the term there really means thrust out your roots. Throw them out. It says instead of this desert bush way of life, just surviving, putting all your resources into yourself, you could be one who reaches your roots out, thrusts them out, looking for life and resources beyond yourself. Looking for that living stream that's going to give you life. You could, in the midst of this threat, instead of doing what we normally do, find a way by my own resources to survive it, you could instead look for, is there a source of life beyond you? Thrust your roots out and try and find life. And if you do that, he says you'll produce beauty and you'll produce fruit and you'll have an impact beyond yourself because now the overflow of that will go through you to others. Which way of life do you want to choose? Desert bush way of life? Just survive when threat comes? Or living, fruit-producing tree kind of life that looks for resources beyond itself? I think God doesn't... Uh, I think God fails us as in many ways as a tool to just fix our environment. If that's all we want. If all we want is somebody who right now will make our situation better. To be honest, I talk to people all the time. We say, and I feel like I am pursuing God and praying, and my situation is not getting better. In fact, sometimes my situation is getting worse. It, it, it doesn't always make things better. If that's all I'm looking for. Not that God never does, but that's not always the story. It's not always the case. Because I love God doesn't mean all of a sudden everything's peaceful and wonderful, right? We all know that. But I think if we're turning to God as the, as the one who is with us, who will love us, who will pour his strength and comfort into us, who gives us hope and a promise, a reason to keep going on, and a sure, absolute destination, knowing that evil has been defeated and Christ is coming again and all things will be set right. If that's where we're looking, then God will change our experience and change our life. You say, yeah, but I'm still in the mess. It is a different mess if you reach out and grab on and hold on to him. It changes your experience. Now, Paul and Silas did eventually pull out their Roman citizenship card. In the end, 
you know, they finally, uh, the magistrates say, hey, let them go. It's okay. We just want it over with. Tell them they got to get out of town. And Paul and Silas say, nope, we're not leaving. Matter of fact, we're Roman citizens. So they need to come here and speak to us before we leave. Which sounds a little bit cocky, you know, like, oh, well, I guess. It's kind of like they're saying, you know, you've accused us of being people who don't care about Roman law. Well, guess what? You guys violated Roman law. And you threw us into prison and beat us. So you come here and talk to us. And many ask, why now? Why would they do that now? Why not pull it out before? And I wonder if it's not because now it's not really just about them anymore, right? They've, they've shown that that's not what they stand on. That's not where their security is found. It is found in the God who stands with them. But now as they're about to leave, they also are thinking of those others who they leave behind. And now these aren't just the people who they won over, these, these problem people who got thrown out of town. Now these are the people who, oops, we made a mistake. We don't want to offend anybody. Uh, we sure don't want Rome to get upset with us. And so now we are Roman citizens. We're leaving, but we want you to acknowledge we're Roman citizens. Even acknowledge that publicly, because I'll bet it changes the situation for the people that they left behind, not facing as difficult a time. So as I end this passage, I just want to leave you with three thoughts. Uh, there could be a lot more, but here are the three that stuck out to me. First, I've already mentioned to you the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ is disruptive. Uh, it makes the ground shake in some ways. I think we should expect resistance. I think we should expect at sometimes things to get upset, things to not be stable when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ or we live it out. I think we should expect sometimes that that's hard. Now, hear me clearly. I don't think every time we hit resistance, it's because of proclaiming and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we face resistance and opposition because we've been stupid or we've been arrogant or we've been selfish. And that happens a lot of times, right? But if we proclaim and live out the truth that Jesus Christ has taught us and lived before us and empowered us to live, if we bring the true change that is possible because of the gospel into our world, I think we should expect resistance. I think we should expect that evil is going to be disrupted by that and is not going to be happy with that. I think we should expect that there are people in this world who are not going to be comfortable with that and not like that change. Now, that doesn't mean that our way should be to be arrogantly demanding our way. I just think it means we should expect sometimes it's going to be hard and not always think that we've done something wrong if it got hard. One way that I think we bring change that will not always be accepted is I think the gospel, as I said in the book of Acts, uh, it unites what often the world divides. And I don't think people will always like that. That we ought to be a force, the church of Jesus Christ ought to be a force that unites. We ought to bring together. We ought to, we ought to be a place that is made up of people of different race and culture and gender and age and social status and financial status. We say, well, that'd be great if that happens. We'll, we'll support that if that happens. I think we ought to actually pursue that. That's who we are. We should be a diverse people because we want the world to know that in Jesus Christ, those boundaries don't matter anymore. In Jesus Christ, those things are secondary now. What unites us is the fact that we are all children of God, loved by Jesus Christ, that we now have hope for eternity because of him. That's what unites us. All those other things, they kind of fade away in the face of that. 
They're still there. They just aren't primary anymore. They sure don't divide. Second thing is, I think that we'll be a disruptive force because we put love ahead of personal prosperity and advancement. That if we do that, I think sometimes that'll be disruptive. People won't always like that. If you put loving the other and caring for the person ahead of your own personal prosperity, your personal advancement, there are times that people will not support you in that. There are times bosses will be against you. There's times neighbors will not like you. There's times that people will not be happy because you do that. We should expect some resistance. But the gospel should be a disruptive force. We should join that. Second, I think we should pursue joy in the faith and in Christ Jesus for ourselves and for others. Uh, We live in a broken world. We do. And in the midst of that brokenness, I think we are promised in Scripture that the one thing we have that is our, our greatest source of life and stability is that when we thrust out those roots, there is living water waiting for us. That if we reach out and grab hold, God is there for us. We ought to pursue that joy. We ought to, we ought to try to progress in it. It is the result of knowing Christ, but it also ought to be our goal, pursuing joy. Now, I say that as one who needs lots of help with that. Now, I've told you before, I'm a curmudgeon. That's kind of who I am, you know. Everybody tells me everything's, you know, roses and butterflies and all that stuff. I'm wanting to get, yeah, well, let me show you what's not that way. You know, naturally, I want to pull them back to reality, right? I don't think that this is a joy that is somehow divorced from reality. It's a joy that says, yes, things are hard. Things are difficult. There are real struggles. And God is here. And God loves us. And God has defeated evil, and Jesus is coming again, and shalom shall be established. That's absolutely true. It is hard. And God is with us. It is still true. There is reason to rejoice. There's reason to sing. Last, I think we should be cautious in our use of human systems of power and, um, and tools of power. I'm not saying we should never use legal or financial or political power as a church or as individual Christians. I think there are times that's fine. I think we should be cautious with that. I think we should think hard about the message that that sends. Will people see that our, our source that we depend on, our security, is really based in those kind of powers? Or is it in Jesus Christ? Is that the ground we stand on? And even when we knew, use them, we ought to ask, how do we really believe that influence will happen and change will happen? Do we think it's going to be happen because we are more powerful than them? Because we can force it and demand it? Or is it going to happen because Jesus Christ is going to change hearts? Because he's going to do what, by human power, we could never do. He's going to send an earthquake. He's going to change the jailer's heart. He's going to cast the demon out of the slave girl. He's going to bring change. Uh, most of you know, two weeks ago, finished our trip out to Lummi Nation. So nine of us went out to the Lummi Nation and uh, did our camp. And, and again, want to thank, this is a church that supports camps. And uh, it's a pretty cool thing. And you guys supported that camp out there, uh, out in northwest Washington on the Lummi Reservation. Uh, we had, I think, I don't know, maybe the most kids we've ever had, I think, in the four years I've done it. Uh, a lot of kids, a lot of chaos as always. Uh, all the money we possibly needed to do the camp. In fact, I was even thinking, the things you don't think about out there was we had more money because you guys just so generously gave, uh, so they bought T-shirts for all the kids. Well, as we were handing out T-shirts about mid-camp, kind of realized 
actually, these kids need these T-shirts. Half of them don't have any clothes, and they need these T-shirts to get through the next couple of days. And so we were even talking next year, want a couple of T-shirts, you know, because this is a big deal. Uh, and again, you guys help make that happen. But when we were out there um, talking to these kids and hearing these stories from even the adults who are there all year, uh, the thing you are aware of is there's just brokenness everywhere you turn. Everywhere you turn, there's just signs of exploitation and abuse and addiction, uh, imprisonment. There's just brokenness everywhere. Sweet kids, kids like all kids, they laugh and play and love. And, but when you really get under the surface, man, lots of brokenness. It's heartbreaking. And it is tempting when you walk into those situations to, to kind of believe, you know what will really bring change here? If they could just be more like us. If they could just get more education and if they could make more money and get better jobs and those kind of things, their life would be really good, right? That's what really needs to happen to make everything change here. Matter of fact, it'd be easy for us to send that message as people who come in, that we come in and, you know, we come from different financial situations and different levels of education and, you know, you ought to be like us and those things will change your life. It'd be easy to send that message. That will... That will solve the brokenness that's going on here. And I'm glad that the team who went with me and I'm glad that we work hard not to send that message, even though it'd be easy to do, even easy to believe. And I think those things matter. I want to see those kids get a good education. Uh, I was talking to Tom Cox, one of our missionaries out there, and he was saying that year at the Lummi High School, 34 kids, I think, were eligible to graduate, seniors. Uh, Twelve of them graduated. Only 12 made it to the end. I want them to get better education. It matters. I want them to get better health care. It matters. I want them to get treatment for addiction. It absolutely matters. I want them to find stable jobs. It is a good thing, and we should be helping them do that if we can. But the brokenness, if it's really going to be solved, if there's going to be real change in the midst of all this turmoil, it's going to be because they learn to reach out and grab onto that same solid source of life that we have to reach out and grab onto that our education and our money and our jobs didn't solve any more than it's going to solve for them. They need that same source of life. And that's the message we wanted to send. That's the thing we wanted to model with all we had. I think that's what Paul and Silas were doing. I think they were modeling for people. This is our life. This is the ground we stand on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we do reach out, you're there. That when we reach out, not only are you there, but you reach back and you pull us in. So, Father, how thankful we are for your great love and your great strength. In your name, amen.